Welcome to For the Love of Dharma. I'm so happy you're here. My name is Heather Love, and I'm one of the first certified Dharma coaches in the world. This podcast will help you be more joyful, remember your purpose, and live life on your terms. Get ready to get inspired. Here we go. Hi, friends. Okay, so I'm not sure if I'm allowed to say that I have a favorite episode because I do truly love the variety of topics that we discuss on this show, the people that share their stories and the lessons that we learn. But this one is special, like really special. My guest today is Yvonne Caputo. She has led an amazing life with many different careers, including a teacher, a psychotherapist, and an EAS counselor, just to name a few. When she was 72 years old, she published her first book called Flying with Dad, which documented her father's life as a World War II pilot. Through those conversations, their relationship was changed and he opened up about his wishes for when it was time for him to cross over and Yvonne was able to experience this time with him. This led to her second book called Dying with Dad, which she published when she was 75. I talk a lot on the show, on social media, and just all the time basically about living life on your terms. It's a huge mission of mine. Until this interview, I really never thought about what it would mean to also die on your own terms, to die with dignity in a way that honors who you are and what desires you have. If we're lucky, most of us will see our parents with us for a long time, but with that can come some tough decisions. This conversation opened my heart in a new way. I've never cried during an interview until this one. It's such a beautiful story that you can't help but be touched by it. This episode is really about finding strength in love and recognizing that in the end, it's not about what you want. It's about honoring our loved one's wishes and being comfortable enough with their decisions to follow through with them. Without further ado, let's welcome Yvonne to the show. Hi, Yvonne. Welcome to the show. Thank you very much. I'm glad to be here. I'm so excited to talk to you. But before I get started with any questions, I love to ask my guest to select either blue or red. And I have a blue book and a red book. And I will ask you a random question from whichever book you choose. The red book. Have you ever owned a goldfish? Yes. You have. Yes. Yes. (laughs) When I was very, very little. And sadly, uh, like many children who own goldfish, you come downstairs in the morning and the fish is laying, you know, at the top of the water. Upside down, yeah. (laughs) Upside down. And mother was very kind about the whole kind of thing. And but it did get flushed down the toilet. Yeah, I think that's the <laughs> I think that is the fate of many goldfish. I unfortunately. Think so, too. <laughs> so I would love for you to tell my listeners a little bit about what was Yvonne like as a kid? What was your personality like? And what did you do for fun? I 
was, and probably still am, one of the most sensitive people that I know. I also lived in a neighborhood with about 30 boys, and I was the only girl. And King of the Mountain and War and all those games, just, I I didn't want to do any of that. So I was pretty solitary, but never solitary because I always had a book. My mother was also really good in terms of, okay, if you're going to spend so much time in the house, I want to teach you things. So she taught me to cook and she taught me to sew. My very first sewing project was a flannel nightgown. And apart on the sensitive side, um, I was teased a lot by my older brother. So I was often in tears and, and in my room. So I was that sensitive kind of shy kid. So that's how I was when I was little. 30 boys in the neighborhood. I cannot imagine. <laughs> that's a lot of boy energy. And I love that you always had a book because I love to read. My daughters love to read. And when you were talking about learning to sew, I remember being in a sewing class. I think I was in seventh grade and my very first project was a nightgown. It was not flannel, but it was cotton, but it was a nightgown. So you brought back some happy memories for me. Do you remember what you wanted to be when you grew up? I didn't really get that figured out until probably my junior year in high school. My mother made it very clear to me that college was the only option that I needed to go on. And she was very clear, too, that if something should happen to my husband, she wanted me to have a career that I could fall back on. Now, graduating in 1964, the options for a young female were nursing school and teaching. And I chose teaching because I wanted to move away from the town in which I was born, and, but I didn't want to move too far away. It was only like 45 minutes away, and I could get the bus home on any weekend that I wanted to get the bus home. But the major reason that I still laugh about for choosing teaching is that the nursing school was run by the same group of nuns that I had in high school, and I did not want to do three more years of that. So that's the honest to goodness reason why I became a teacher. <laughs> now, luckily for me, I loved every minute of it. You know, it was the best career I could have had at the time. But it's interesting to look back on and, and really come to terms with why you made the decision that you made. Yeah, that's, that is amazing. And I never really thought about how limited your options were back then. You know, it's like, you're going to nursing or going to teaching. There you go. Pick one. That's it. That's uh, it. Amazing. And I chose not to be a science teacher because I loved science. Absolutely loved science. But I didn't think as a five foot two person, I was going to be able to control a classroom full of big kids. So I chose elementary. And then later on, of course, found out that my size had nothing to do with whether or not I could control a classroom with kids. Mm -hmm. 
So you became a teacher and I know you also were an EAP counselor and a psychotherapist. So I would love to hear a little bit about your journey and what you have been through. When I was a teacher, the last 12 years in the city of Erie, I taught gifted kids. And I also, because I was single, would save up my money and have the summer off and head to Europe by myself. Now, the first trip, I went with someone else and we did 7,200 miles in the summer in a VW bug. I loved it so much that I wanted to go back, but I always chose to go back to Great Britain because I was understood. I didn't have that language barrier and traveling by myself, that was not an additional kind of thing that I just wanted to face. So in one of those trips, I met another teacher in England and we were sitting down talking one day and we said, you know, wouldn't it be cool if we exchange kids? You know, if you come one summer and I come back another summer. So that's what we did. So the very first trip that I took with children, we were housed in a youth hostel for the first week. So I had these kids 24 seven. And at two o'clock in the morning, there'd be a knock on the door and somebody was really homesick or somebody was thinking about home. One of my students was a bedwetter and I never found out until we got there. One of my students had two alcoholic parents and she came and started talking about what, what that was like, never knowing when she went home, what things were going to look like. So I came back feeling totally unprepared to deal with the social emotional problems that my students were exhibiting. So that pushed me to go back to school and get a second master's degree in clinical psych, which then allowed me to be a therapist. And then I met this man. Uh, we've been married for 34 years, so it's lasted. And he lived on the opposite side of the state, and he had two children from a, a previous marriage. And there's just no way he was going to leave them. He was not going to be moving to Erie. I was going to be moving here. So when I came uh, to this part of the state, I couldn't find a teaching position. And so I started to do some networking. And lo and behold, the master's in clinical psych really paid off because I joined an employee assistance program. And the reason that the person who interviewed me, and by the way, the best boss I've ever had in my life, what she said would be, would, would you be comfortable doing training? Absolutely. You know, the teaching background fit right in. So I did employee assistance work for nine years. Then I was doing some pretty comprehensive management training for a retirement community. Four months after we were done with that training. The CEO called me and said, would you be interested in taking the HR position here at the, at the home? And I thought about it and I thought, you know, this is an opportunity for me to put my money where my mouth is. Because here I've been out saying, as a supervisor, this, these are some good things for you to do. So was I going to be able to have that kind of influence from the inside of an organization? I stayed at, it's now called Frederick Living, which is a continuing care retirement community, which has all three levels of service, independent living, personal care, 
and nursing. I stayed there for 17 years until I retired. And in the process of all that, before I retired, I was on the phone with my father back on the western part of the state. Our Sunday calls are a way of connecting. He's older and a brittle diabetic. So our calls would be what doctor's appointments, what treatments have you had, what are the medication shifts you've got. Luckily, we had two lovely people across the street that we hired to come and help take care of him. How were things going with those folks? And then the conversations would kind of lag. I was not a sports nut, and dad was. But one evening in January of 2008, he told me this funny, quirky, off-the-wall story about making an emergency landing in Freed, Belgium, toward the end of the Second World War. And I said to him, I said, Dad, let me go get a pencil and paper. What the hell do you want to do that for? And I said, this is good stuff. I think that this might be stuff that the family would like to have a record of. The following week, out of curiosity, I said, Dad, if you're willing, start at the beginning. Tell me more. And he did. And story after story after story came rolling off of his tongue, giving me an insight into the father that I always wanted to know. So in, I retired, and then I could really put the time and energy into the book, and four years later it was published. So it was an 11-year journey um, to get to uh, Flying with Dad, which is the name of the book. Oh my goodness. What an amazing life you have had. I have chills from when you were talking. So how did, over the course of those years on those Sunday calls, how did your relationship with your dad change as he's telling these stories? It shifted 180 degrees. I say frequently that through those conversations, I received the father I always wanted, and he got a daughter that he didn't know he had to the degree that he waited for me to get home for his final journey. He had been in the hospital in 2009 at Christmas time. My husband and I and his brother, we went back to visit. We had a lovely visit. I turned around, we turned around, came home. The night that we got home, dad called and he was livid. He was in a rage. Why did you tell them that I could leave the hospital? I said, I told the social worker that you could go when you were ready. And it doesn't sound like you were ready. So he calmed down and he said, Yvonne, I'm scared. Can you come home? I said, I'll be there tomorrow. And dad, I'll find somebody to come and stay with you so you're not alone. And by the way, I don't think you can live at home anymore. We're going to have to go to plan B. And he said, I know. So I got back in the car the following morning, making phone calls hither, thither and yon to make sure he finally got some medication because he was in a great deal of pain. And I got home at about four o'clock in the afternoon. And at 630, he was gone. Mm, that's such a beautiful story. And I'm so glad he waited. <laughs> yes, yeah, so am I. So am I. So being with dad on his final journey led to the second book, Dying with Dad. And it was interesting because the feedback I got from the first book was, how could you let your dad go? How could you do that? What was it that you didn't want him to stay alive? 
Well, in the process of getting to know my father, we did an advanced directive with an attorney, but we also did a document called the Five Wishes. And the Five Wishes is an advanced directive with heart. It asked questions. Yes, who is going to be his healthcare agent? Yes, what kind of medical treatment did he want or did he not want? But it asked how comfortable he wanted to be. It asked how he wanted to be remembered by his children and by others. It asked what kind of a funeral did he want to have? What did he want his children to know? I mean, all of these really deep, intimate questions. So when dad was that two and a half hours later, when he was in trouble, I had to call 911 because I'm not a nurse. I don't know. You know, somebody needed to tell me, you know, this is not serious or this is serious. When I found out that it was serious, I called the hospital, which had a current do not resuscitate order on his chart and said, please send it to the emergency room. They're going to bring dad in. The emergency room doctor called maybe no more than two minutes later and told the EMTs, you can stop working on it. So I laid down beside him, put my arm across his chest, talked into his ear, told him I loved him, told him I'd miss him, told him that he was going to be with my mother, which was where he wanted to be because we had talked about that. And then the glue in our family was the Lord's Prayer. So I said the Lord's Prayer in his ear, and he was gone. And it was such a gift. It was such a gift for me to be able to give my father, Heather, exactly what he wanted. He said, I want to go out of my house feet first. And that's exactly what he did. And even, well, this is kind of funny. I mean, how can you be funny when your dad has just died? But I was going to go in the ambulance to take him to the hospital. As they were putting the gurney down, ready to put him in the ambulance, the light was shining on his face, and there was this soft, sweet smile that told me everything. He was where he wanted to be, and it happened in the way he wanted it to happen. So I'm standing beside the ambulance, and the snow is coming down an inch an hour, and I'm going, yes! And the EMTs are looking at me like I'd lost my head. And I just said to him, you've given dad what he wanted. He wanted to leave his house feet first. And that's exactly how this happened. So that's the second book, how I got to be comfortable, not just talking to dad, but talking to others about death and dying. So dying with dad is the second book. And thank you for making me cry today. I was like, I'm not going to cry. Yeah, I'm totally bawling my eyes out here. Um, So that story, everything about it, oh my goodness, is so beautiful. So one of the things that I talk about on my podcast and I talk about with my clients is really giving yourself permission to live life on your terms. So how important was it to you to be able to allow your dad to die with dignity and die on his terms. It's profound. I think it's probably one of the most profound experiences I've ever had in my life to be able, well, first of all, I had gotten to know this guy 
and he had gotten to know me. And we were we were on this intimate plane that I always wanted. So it makes it even more profound. But to be able to give that gift to one that you so deeply love, it's just profound is the only word for it. So I say, I don't grieve the loss of my father the way I grieve the loss of my mother and my brother, because they didn't go on their own terms. We didn't know what their own terms were. Do I miss my dad? Absolutely. When I give anything for an hour with him, because I've got so many questions to hear the sound of his voice. My father gave the best hug in the whole wide world. He was a solid man. He was only five foot eight, but he was solid, close to 200 pounds. And he would wrap you in one of those hugs and you knew, you knew you were safe. So would I give my eye teeth for one of those hugs again? Absolutely. But at the same time, and that's the divine paradox, but at the same time, there's such joy knowing that I was able to help him go in the way that he wanted to go. That's so beautiful. Was there anything about this process? You know, he's got this do not resuscitate order. Did you ever consider not doing that? Or, oh my gosh, this is too hard. I can't go through with it. Honestly, no. Every single time dad went into the hospital, which was frequently, okay, I always called the unit that he was on and said, is there a DNR on the chart? No, please get one done. Then I would call dad and I would say, they're going to come in and they're going to ask you to sign a do not resuscitate. Are you cool with that? And he said, yes. So every single time dad went into the hospital, I did that because I knew I, I didn't want to foul up. I didn't want something. To, and having worked at a nursing home, I have to drop back and say, I watched so many pitiful cases where advanced directives weren't written or they were written in another state and didn't apply to Pennsylvania. And a poor daughter thinking that she was a healthcare agent, she wasn't. She couldn't be in terms of what the state of Pennsylvania would allow. So I watched all of these things happen and children being absolutely bereft because they didn't know what their parents wanted or their parents were no longer able to communicate what those wishes were. That's sadness. Yeah, I think that so many of us think we know what our loved ones want and we think we can handle whatever responsibilities come along with someone passing away. But the truth of it is, it's so much easier to have those discussions when they're still here so that they're allowed to have a say in all those things. Yeah. I've been told by other people that they probably could not have done it, even if they had known. But that's, I think that's the price of love. If you really truly love someone, then it's no longer about you and about keeping this person alive for you. It's about letting that person go because that's what they want. That's such an amazing way to look at it. And yeah, it does take so much strength and courage, but when you love someone, you do want to honor their wishes. So that's really beautiful. You know, I didn't even think of it. When it was going on, 
when I was just so straightforward in making sure that it went the way that he wanted it. I don't know where that came from. I mean, if I really look at it, I don't really know where that came from other than the fact that I was trying to follow what he said he wanted. And you, I think I think all of us sometimes find the strengths to do things that we never, ever thought we'd be able to do. And, and it's based in love. That's so true. So you had this long, amazing career and you did all of these things that helped so many people. After that long career, what made you decide to publish not only one book, but two books? Well, it really started with Flying with Dad, about four chapters in. And let me backtrack. When I said to Dad, start at the very beginning, he started with high school, graduating from high school, the only one in his family to do so, the son of Italian immigrants, the only child born in the United States, parents who never learned to speak English, graduating from high school. My grandfather came to that graduation, and two weeks later, he was gone. So he lived long enough to see this dream, to see his son graduate from high school. It's 1939. There's no job for my dad. My dad's living with his two sisters, and the two women are able to support him because they were seamstresses in a coat factory. However, one of them was engaged and going to be getting married, and dad knew that they weren't going to be able to survive on one salary, and that in order... He had to find something because he needed to support his sister, Backtrack, who became his mother because his mother died when he was 10. So he went to the youth administration program, found out that he could get training and could get paid a whopping $27 a week to be trained for a job. He chose airplane repair because he built model airplanes as a kid. So it was graduation youth administration program, going off to Augusta, Georgia, repairing the airplanes that young learning pilots, in dad's words, would bust up. And then creating a wing for an AT-6, which is a training plane, having the wing put on the plane, the pilot not believing that the thing was going to fly, because what does this 19-year-old kid know about building a wing? So he told dad to get in the plane. And when dad was up there flying, he said, I don't want to fix him anymore. I want to fly him. So he petitioned to get out of his presidential deferment, which because he repaired airplanes, he never would have had to have gone to war. Could have stayed safe stateside, but he wanted to fly. So by the time this is all rolling off his tongue, I'm thinking, this is a book. This is just an extraordinary, ordinary guy who... For reasons not duty, not Hitler, not courage, not any of that stuff, he wanted to fly. So being able to tell that story, I really felt that there was an audience for it. Now, it went through three drafts before I found a publisher and 11 years before it hit the market. (laughs) But once I got into the idea that I had a book, It was like something that bit me and I just couldn't let it go. But I'm also always very clear. I know what I don't know. I don't know how to publish a book. I didn't know how to write a book. 
I needed a proofreader. I needed an editor. I needed all kinds of things. So I did my research and found somebody. And I say this frequently, Bonnie uh, Wagner Stafford of Ingenium Books took my third draft, threw it in a blender and sent it back to me and said, this is what I think you ought to do. So what you see when you see the book is what she suggested. And her suggestions just, for me, took the book over the top in terms of readability and structure and cover and all those kinds of things. But you're right. I had no intention when I retired of being an author, let alone writing two books. I can't wait to read them, especially now that I've talked to you. So both of these books were published while you are in your 70s. So what would you say to people who think they are too old to start something new or try something different? The first words that came to my head were, knock it off. <laughs> it's it, it's not too late. It's really not too late. And And I did get I have to say, working at Frederick Living for 17 years was so helpful because I was able to see older people who let life take them that would say, I'm too old to change or I'm too old to do this. But I would see just the opposite, too. I would see older folks that were working out and volunteering and yes, they were in a community, but they were living life to the very fullest. So I had a lot of really super role models, one of whom died at 103 in the 1930s. She and her husband got an opportunity to open a jewelry store. They were able to survive in that jewelry store through the Depression. It was meager. The big amount of money coming in for them was he repaired watches, okay? And people couldn't afford to buy a new watch. But they ended up building this business, and she's going off to New York. And she's working with Tiffany's. And she's working with places like that to order jewelry to bring back to her store. So there were residents with those kinds of stories that they stayed involved year after year after year after year. So I had good role models. So what is it that you dream? And don't be afraid to admit you don't know, because somebody does. Somebody can help you go where you want to go. I love what you said about just not giving up your life. I see so many people who, I don't know, I don't know the magic number of what age it is. I don't think there is a magic number, but you know, whether it's once they retire or whatever. And they do, they just sort of give up life. They don't, they sit at home, they don't do anything. They watch TV and that's when you get to like, you have all this freedom, you know, for so many people who are, are of an older generation, they have spent 30, 40, 50 years working. So now, you know, once they retire, it's, that's your time. Go, go do things, go have fun, go on adventures, learn new things. Mm -hmm. So I love that. So I know you said that your relationship with your dad shifted immensely during the years that he was telling you all of the stories. Were there any gifts that you kind of were able to uncover or what are some of the things that did shift in your relationship? How did you become closer? My dad was angry most of the time. 
And one of the stories in the book is me trying to approach him for 35 cents to go to a dance on a Saturday night. And it took me four attempts to work up the courage to go in. And then he was really gruff. What do you think I made of money? And and that underlying anger was what kept me back because I didn't know what to do with it. I didn't know where it was coming from. I didn't know what I had done wrong, you know, to cause it. Well, as dad opened up and told me more about the war, I understood where the anger came from. My father had PTSD. My father had recurring nightmares for three years when he came home. It was the same nightmare. His B-24 was spiraling out of control because they'd been hit. He couldn't get out. The, the nightmares were so bad that he dragged his fingers through the mattress, dug channels in them. He doesn't know why three years later, they went away. But as a psychotherapist, I could tell dad, dad, your nightmares were normal. What the hell do you mean? I said, given what you witnessed, we now know that nightmares are a normal after effect of having witnessed traumatic things. And I said, if we got a hundred men in a room and asked them if they had nightmare, nightmares when they came back from the war, most of them hopefully would open up and say, absolutely. So when I explained to dad the psychoneurology of what the nightmares were all about, I almost literally heard his shoulders drop. The next thing that happened between dad and I was when he told me about a flashback. And again, I could explain what a flashback was, why he had it. But for me, understanding where the anger came from, because there's all this stuff that's laying in there. And he thinks there's something wrong with him. And he said this, he said he came home, he'd be walking down the street, he'd see another GI, they'd stop and they'd say hello, and they'd kibitz a little bit, but they never talked about that stuff. So he was left feeling with, I'm the only one, something's wrong with me, I'm the only one, when probably every single one of those soldiers had horrific stories that they could tell. That was an insight that helped me a great deal to just kind of back off and listen to the stories and listen to the stories that made him angry. On that last phone call, when he asked me to come home, he said, Yvonne, I'm so sorry I yelled at you. And I said, it's okay, dad, you were venting. You didn't mean it. So our relationship had gotten to the point where he recognized that the way he came across was probably not the way he wanted to have come across. So that was a big piece of my understanding my dad in a new way. Such a beautiful gift for not only you to get those stories, to be able to understand who he was beneath all of that, but also such a beautiful gift that you could give to him so that he could understand and not feel alone and not feel like something's wrong with me. So I just love that so much. There's You can feel the love and the compassion just in your stories. And I just am so touched by all of this. And I just thank you so much for sharing all of it. I want people to listen. I want children to listen to their parents. I want parents to listen to their children because it's in those stories that we get those understandings. Absolutely. Absolutely. 
Oh my goodness. This has been so amazing. Before I let you go, I like to ask my guests five questions and I just want you to answer the first thing that comes to your mind. And it's just a way for my listeners to get to know you even a little bit better. Okay. What is your favorite birthday or holiday memory? Christmas. Any particular? The family being around the Christmas tree and opening presents together and being in our nightgowns your pajamas and and even the grumpiness of dad mom and dad had probably been up till two or three in the morning putting everything <laughs> together you know and so here we go at six o'clock in the morning and right we're ready to go so christmas but also with christmas going to church together mm. that 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 it wasn't just the presence but it was the meaning of christmas so that's a favorite favorite childhood memory mm, that's beautiful what is something you do for fun? I am an exercise enthusiast. And fun for me is being able to do my daily program. It's a time for me to get away from things. It's a time for my body to get into action. It's a time for me to stream my favorite <laughs> TV programs to, to keep me you know, interested. Reading and singing in a choir. I love all of those things. What does the world need more of? Values, respect, mm. love, compassion, understanding. We're all human beings. You know, we all have needs, wants, and desires. And we need to stop looking at people as the other. I couldn't agree more. We're all one and we get to start acting that way. All right, next question. What are you learning more about right now? A little bit of everything. It depends on what I'm reading. Oh, I'm loving the stuff of Brene Brown. Oh, I'm she's fabulous. It. Yeah. And she tuned me into Susan Kane and Bittersweet. I'm loving that people have now research. They can put it into research. It's not goody two-shoes. It's not the goody-goody feelings, but they literally research what makes us happy how we live life fully. This whole idea from Susan Cain of bittersweet that people who are really functioning are able to capture that thought. They know that they're going to be rough times. They're going to get through the rough times. And when they come out of the rough times, there's going to be something, some piece of learning, some new association, some new friendship, that there's something good that can happen by going through whatever is awful. Absolutely. All right. Last question. Knowing what you know now, what advice would you give your younger self? There's a story with this. I had a client that was chronically ill. We knew each other over a period of maybe 15 years. And we would work on the depression and anxiety that went along with her illness. But it got to the point she would come back for tune-ups and it got to the point where I began to question what good I was doing. Was I really helping her? And so I went to a workshop and it was on this kind of topic of trauma. And this is some a woman who lived with trauma all her life. So I decided to ask the presenter a question. I told him the story I just told you. I said, what do I need to do differently? And he said, there's only one thing you need to do. He said, you need to ask her the following question. 
how do you want to live until you die? I was blown away. I didn't focus much on the rest of his presentation because I was so taken aback by that question. But interestingly enough, when I saw this client for the next time, I was stewing. Can I ask her this? Can I really do? Can I, you know, but I did it. And her response was she broke out into laughter, belly laughter. And she said to me, she said, Yvonne, that's the best question you ever asked me. How do you want to live till you die? I love it. Isn't it great? And that's what she did. She didn't feel like she had a purpose. So her plan was to try and find a little job. She couldn't work full time. So she was the she was a part time uh, secretary at her church. And then she came back and I said, well, how do you want to live till you die? And she said, well, I'm missing music. So she went off and joined an orchestra. Oh. You know, so even in the midst of the things that were happening to her, she was able to find what it was that she needed to move herself forward. Just through that question. How do you want to live until you die? That's a beautiful question. I love it. it. Yeah. Yvonne, you have touched my heart so much with your stories. I have enjoyed getting to know you so much. Thank you so much for being here. I cannot wait for my listeners to get to know you and hear your stories and read your books. Thank you so much. I appreciate it. This entire conversation was full of such beautiful moments of reflection for me. If I can leave you with anything from this episode and... I'm talking to myself as much as anyone else here. If I can leave you with something, go talk to the older people in your lives. Find out their stories. What was their life really like? Why do they have the beliefs they have? Why do they act in the way they do? What makes them them? What do they want others to know about them? What are their wishes? These conversations will probably be some of the most important ones in both your life and theirs. One of the things Yvonne said that I loved is what she had to say about how she views being too old to start something new. The only limitations you have are the ones you place on yourself. It's not too late and you're not too old. Do the things that you want to do. Today is the first day of the rest of your life. What legacy do you want to leave when you're no longer here? How do you want to live until you die? Links to connect with Yvonne on LinkedIn and buy her books are in today's show notes. If you loved this episode, it would mean the world to me if you would head on over to Apple Podcasts and leave me a five-star rating and review. We need people to have more conversations that matter. And by leaving a review, you help my podcast get seen by more people. Thanks so much for listening. Have a magical day. This podcast episode is brought to you by Prompts to Purpose, my free workbook that will help you stop spinning your wheels and start remembering your gifts. Inside, you'll find 25 journal prompts to get you thinking about things in a new way so that you can find your purpose and start living the life of your dreams. If you're ready to dive in, get on my email list by clicking on the link in the show notes or in my Instagram bio, and I'll send it over. Come on in and see what everyone is talking about. 